This show is about spoilers and discussion. It's also about spooky things that are best enjoyed after you see the movie. So any movie we talk about, we recommend you go see. You've been warned. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Horror. There is no shortage of monsters to haunt our dreams. Horror. You got red on you. They're coming to get you, Barbara. guys, and welcome to another episode of Oh the Horror, a podcast where we take a look at classic and modern horror films from an expert and a newcomer's perspective. I'm the expert Rob Holmes. And I'm the newcomer Steve Allman. And today, we are looking at the 1982 classic Creep Show, directed by George Romero and written by Stephen King. Already a clash of the horror titans for the 1980s uh, filmmaking scene. Stephen King pretty much at the height of his powers uh, around this time as a writer and both a Hollywood presence for yeah. getting a lot of his films adapt- or his stories adapted. Yeah, he. this was the 80s was a huge time for adaptations. 80s and 90s. The 90s went more from the theatrical realm into the made-for-television realm. Um, starting with with it, and then moving on like Tommyknockers. Unfortunately, the Langoliers, which was just very very bad. Um, but a lot of but a lot of his stuff, though it is still being done as a not made for television mainly, but more of a digital medium. So Hulu, there's a lot of stuff of his that's appearing there. Um, it's it's cool to see that you know Stephen King is something that he he has been in our lives. Since we were kids, you know? Yes, it's probably since our parents were almost kids. Like, arounding to that time. Because, well, like, we, our we, parents yeah. were kind of, like, just at the cusp of their teenage years, and then, bam, Stephen King was in there. Well, okay, uh, your, yours may be. Mine are much, much my, older. Sorry, my parents are fairly young. <laughs> yeah, mine, mine, are, mine are much, much older. Um, okay. So, so, probably less so with them. Um, but Creepshow, man, this, this film... It's very, very unique. So, it, for people who don't know about Creepshow, it is, uh, and it pays homage to the EC and DC horror comics. Um, so that included like House of Mystery, House of Secrets, Tales from the Crypt, uh, the Vault of Horror, and the Haunt of Fear. Now, both Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror have already existed as live action features. Uh, so those were done in the '70s, and they were both, I think, British films. Um, but they did the exact same type of thing of taking these comics, the stories from the comics, and adapting them to film. And they're really, really good films. I mean, they are very, very good. Uh, now, when it comes down to Creepshow, Creepshow is kind of a different beast altogether because it didn't just adapt the comics. It adapted and created some new stuff uh, very faithfully to that comic book style. Very, very faithfully. Yes, and this and Creepshow. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It, it, Creepshow itself was a horror comic from the fifties. Creepshow was part of that comic series. There was the creep, and the creep was uh, who the kid is seeing in the beginning, who's kind of beckoning him to the window. So that's basically where they're getting the idea of Creepshow, and it also works for the idea of going to see something at the theater. In this case, you're going to see a Creepshow. Um, but that was never that was never the name uh, 
of the, I don't think that was the name of any of the original comics, but it was just kind of encompassing of those, uh, of the EC comics, um, you know, of their different, of their different stuff, like Tales from the Crib and Vault of Horror and Haunt of Fear and everything. Yes. And to, uh, get into like sort of the space that we're getting into for Creepshow to exist, this was fairly early on in the eighties and, uh, yeah. The, I guess you could say, like, the cult aspect of horror uh, wasn't exactly coming into play as much as as when we get into the later 80s when there was, like, a more of an explosion in the popularity of the genre. This, uh, I think, was kind of a bit of a trailblazer for anthology films uh, um, at, this, at this height of budget, at least. For this high of budget, I would say potentially, but we're also talking, this is very close to the time of Twilight Zone, the movie, which I think was 1983. Oh, um, really? Okay. I think. Let me just double check. Uh, but there were, as I said, you know, Vault of Horror and Tales from the Crypt did already exist as films. So yeah, Twilight Zone, the movie was 1983. The anthology thing was was big at the time. It was coming back. People liked the idea of anthologies, especially in the 80s. It was a big way to get a lot of stories told. You see a lot in the horror genre. I think Creepshow was one of the most successful of it. It had, I want to say, somewhere around a $8 million budget. And just in the U.S. alone, it grossed $21 million, which is a ton for 1982 and is a lot for a horror movie in general. Just because, you know, horror was was a very big thing, but slashers were predominantly in the theaters and what were oversaturating the market at that point uh, because of the success of Friday the 13th in 1980. Okay, so, so interesting. Th- throwing in new stuff didn't always work. People were pretty gung-ho on certain things but i guess around 82 the slashers started to die out a little bit i guess they had pumped out too many in that two-year period so creep show filled that void uh because it was different it was unique it was colorful that's what i was saying about the it's very comic booky they they replicate the panels in the artwork oh my god almost it, it, almost spect- in spectacular fashion like absolutely i think that yeah. this movie ha- overall the best thing this movie has going for it, along with the litany of Hollywood icons and stars that are in this movie. Hell of a uh, cast, yeah. Is, hell of a cast. Hell of a cast uh, is the style that it brings to the actual uh, to the actual movie. Excuse me. <laughs> right. <laughs> to the, the actual in, in table the, here. In the editing, the cinematography, it's a lot of style. It's very... You know, when people see this film, I remember as a kid, so I, I saw this film and I didn't really like it but I was very, I was into very hardcore horror stuff at the time, so I wanted it to be taken seriously, and I didn't want it to be, you know, tongue-in-cheek or anything like that, or to be too colorful. You know, you're going through your angsty teen phase, right? Um, And when I watched this movie later on, and in the past decade or so, I really appreciate it more than I ever have. It's it's expertly done and crafted, utilizing a lot of techniques um, that I've grown to love in certain types of of style. Uh, It's very colorful, and that's what I've grown to really like in my horror. I want it to be over-the-top, saturated heavily uh, to... Especially when we get into the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. Like, holy crap, man. That set was done inside inside of a school 
um, where it was done, I think, in an all-girls school or something. Romero ended up building a set in there. But it looks so cool. It's absolutely remarkable to see the types of production quality that comes out of this movie because it's well lit, it's colorful, it's vibrant, uh, it it has a very good tongue-in-cheek attitude to it because it is also very much aware of what it's doing, that it is this serialized comic book. It is presenting itself as one of these like sort of pulpy short stories, and... I think it comes off brilliantly in perfect execution as to what it should be. And you can't really fault it for ever really being either too cheesy or too over the top or too uh, even poorly acted or poorly made because that's exactly what it's going for. And its style like absolutely explodes off of the screen. Yeah, it, it embraces what it is. And each story has its own its own vibe to it. So everything's a little different as you're going through it. Um, let's kind of, I guess we can kind of just go through these stories individually. Um, exactly. Oh, well, we can go th- to a, a, the beginning actually, right, because right. this is actually a very odd sort of beginning for, and, uh, for and this, I guess before, uh, we, sort before of we go into there, this is almost like a trifecta of, of people more than it is a duo because I forgot to mention Tom Savini came in to do the, um, makeup effects for this. Yes, the special effects master, pretty right. much. Right, so uh, you're getting Tom Savini of Friday the 13th fame, and, and one of the guys who really put practical effects makeup on the map, extreme practical effects makeup on the map, really, uh, around the late 70s, early 80s. So seeing him in there, and he, has a, he does have a cameo at the end as one of the garbage men, which was really cool to see as well. Um, but yeah, we start off with, with a prologue, and, and what I like is this is a wraparound story, and what always works, I find, in these is you have to have a wraparound story, and you have to have something that, that kind of gets you. Now, I won't say that the full wraparound story works for me, but I do like this prologue uh, where we end up meeting a kid named Billy who's just getting, who's getting just yelled at by his dad and yes. just slapped around. In- Pretty horrifically, actually. Pretty, pretty horrifically. <laughs> Just for, for having a comic book in his possession. Right. Now, this kid's room is decked out with a bunch of horror stuff, but he, he even says he doesn't want his kid reading that crap, yet he lets him have all this other horror stuff in his in his room. That threw me slightly. But, you know, parents. Parents are crazy. Exactly. Um, what we don't realize in this is that Joe King, the son of Stephen King, is playing Billy. You may know <laughs> Joe King under a different name, Joe Hill, uh, and he is a writer now. Uh, a writer so of? A writer of horror novels, just like... Oh, uh, right. Yeah. So he ends up writing... Um, he wrote Horns and Nosferatu and a couple of other horror things that are pretty good. Oh, nice. Yeah, his stuff is, his stuff is really solid. Um, but this film... Yeah, it had him, and then it had Tom Atkins as Stan, the father. Uh, Tom Atkins. So already two very well good, well known names. <laughs> Night of the Creeps, like totally. Tom Atkins in this when you see him, but you see him minus the mustache, and I gotta tell you, it's a little weird. Uh, yeah, it is. It feels like there's a hole in his face where a mustache should be. Yeah, like Tom Atkins, Stan's mustache is a strange thing. It's um, it's a very interesting. Eighties were a crazy time, man. It's very all very crazy time. 
Uh, so then, uh, yeah, Billy Billy's just really upset, and he he hopes his dad's rotting in hell. And the the you know the wife is talking to the the husband and trying to calm him down, but he's just being a dick. And yeah. then you know, as Billy is cursing his father, he sees the creep from the comic book at his window, and he wants him to like move closer. And then we get this because he throws the comic out, and then the comic ends up rolling over. We end up following the comic as it opens up and we get the story of father's day uh yes so in the sort of like title card transition between this bookended story and uh the first one we have like a title sequence that is straight up uh comic font with like big exploding panels and uh, bright colors and crazy cool illustrations of like skeletons and zombies mm-hmm. and all this stuff and already it feels like a good time it feels yeah uh, bright and happy and, and that's, uh, that's if, if where that's, if that can well, be described in, in a way like you're you're going to have you know the tagline for it was the most fun you'll ever have being scared for creep show and it definitely lives up to it because it is I mean, yeah, it's that's, bright it's that, colorful. that lives up to its name you're having a good time with it uh, it doesn't take itself too seriously, nor should it. Mm-hmm. And and Father's Day is kind of short and sweet to the point. Um, it is uh, a story that was written for the film by Stephen King, so not based on, I guess, any other um, short stories or, or any of the other stories from the comics. Uh, this one is about an old patriarch from this family who made their fortune through a bunch of terrible, terrible stuff. And he's killed on Father's Day by his one of his uh, daughters, his spinster daughter. She just she just couldn't deal with it anymore, so she ends up taking what was it, the ashtray, and ends up like smashing his skull in or something with it. Right after after he's she's being taunted constantly by like by like I want my cake and I oh, like yeah. just like all the rest. Like in this in a, in a actually in a very interesting type of. Uh, like montage or like sort of like rhythmic thing where like you hear the beating of the cane and then like her squeezing of the pie batter like beating of the cane squeezing of the pie batter like and it constantly echoes throughout that scene so like even you the audience are kind of being driven crazy right so so you end up seeing the the daughter ends up just finally losing her mind and um the the maid i guess who's there or the housekeeper who's there like sees all this go down but keeps it quiet, you know, and keeps everything covered up. But she ends up, we end up finding this story out in the beginning by her, I guess, her daughter. Her. So it's basically, it's Nathan's granddaughter, Sylvia, and talking to their great-grandchildren. And then uh, Richard and Cass and Cass's husband, Hank, who, this movie is so strange. Like, the cast as we go through it, the first person who we end up seeing who most people would know, Ed Harris. A very young, very oddly not old Ed Harris. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like, but still, seeing but still not middle-aged looks... Ed Harris also very uncomfortable. Yeah, it's like thirty-year-old Ed Harris, and it's a very strange thirty-year-old Ed Harris because I... he already looks like he's screaming to be an old man. You don't. He's so grizzled at thirty. He is a rough, yeah. soft thirty. Right, I, right. <laughs> I can't. Uh, I describe it any other way. It's it's uh, very it's... it's very strange now. Now, with Father's Day, it's super simple. Uh, we get the story. We find out, you know, this family is really pretentious. They're super rich. And basically, when the uh, when the daughter arrives, because she's always on time for stuff, she goes over and visits the grave. And 
you know, at, right at this moment, she goes off at her father, uh, you know, saying why she did what she did, and he crawls out of the he crawls out of the grave, screaming that he wants his cake. Uh, and this is where, you know, the murdering starts. So we're going to start having people picked off one by one, but it's cool. I, I liked what they did throughout. I thought that, um, getting rid of Ed Harris and his, in the way he, his character ends up biting it, like getting shocked and then being too afraid to move, uh, not sure what the hell is going on. And then he just gets his head crushed by this, um, by this, uh, gravestone, this headstone. Um, which I guess it gives a good reason for the name Headstone because it's now smashed into his head. Uh, and it was, it's a really cool moment. You know, it's kind of like, dude, get up because you've been lying here for way too long, but whatever, man, I'll give it to you. Cause you were, you were scared and you were a drunk Ed Harris. Um, and everyone is super drunk there. I love when he comes into the house and just snaps his granddaughter's neck. Like it's nothing. It's it's a very good like we didn't even really talk about this effect like because it's a very good uh, it's really like one good two, man one two cut right uh, because like you thought that like okay he's he's just choked out the old lady so this is this isn't gonna be too no. violent or too over the top and then just snap uh, and I'd also like to talk about the actual effect of the zombie because usually we think of this as makeup but i believe this looks like like a body suit almost right right this this has more of the uh, of the prosthetic that goes over um more of the body because it was trying to give the idea of this is a skeleton underneath or like he's really rotting um i think in this case it works it gives it like a weird chunky bloated effect yeah he looks very bulky right and i think because it, it looks like he's he's come out of the grave and kind of bloated and decaying. Um, I know it's been seven years since it happened, you know, the murder or whatever. Uh, but it, it, I think it works. I think for this, and especially giving it that comic book form works, and then coming out with her head as the cake at the end, saying, like, he finally got his cake. Uh, and then just seeing them not get killed, the two, the two great-grandchildren, them just getting shocked... I think is a great way to end that first scene because it is very morbid for what you're seeing, but there is a, a levity and a humor to it in that, in that moment. Um, and, and we keep kind of going in this fun aspect in this next one, we actually get a little zany and then it gets really depressing. Um, uh, yeah, it's it, like the, these stories kind of run the board and I really kind of love this next one. If we could get I, into it. Yeah. The lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. It's, it's pretty great, and it's done in a very hokey way. It actually pokes fun, I think, at a lot of those, um, you know, the meteor crashes, and there's the local yokel who comes out to right. try and... and I can, I can immediately, immediately see where the beginning of Men in Black got its inspiration from, because right. holy shit, this is, like, almost exactly the exact same thing. Like, yeah. uh, Stephen King, also the star of this story, weirdly enough, it's Dude, so he's, cool. He is so good in this. Because he's actually kind of amazing. Like he is yeah. great at playing this just like kind of dumb little yokel that it, like he's on his farm and he sees a meteor and he just wants to turn it into the local u university for $200. $200. So he can pay just off his $200, ba his bank loan, I guess is $200. So you're kind of wondering what year this takes place in, um, or, or how much that really, you know, in the eighties, 200 bucks is, is not something to laugh at, but at the same time, really, um, like that's all you could get. That's all you thought to get. 
and what I love about this one is that and actually I think I think this is one of the most memorable ones out of all of them, mainly due to the fact that Stephen King's performance is just so it's so good. And I can't say it enough because until you see it and fully like grasp the ridiculousness of how he just plays this character like a cartoon to a T. Right, like, with the buck teeth and all that stuff. It's and the, so and the la- funny. And the like lazy eye or just like the weird cross eye that he has with it. It's the cross eye that he kind of does when he looks at stuff. Um, it's so it's just so good. Anyway, what happens is this this meteorite is too hot to touch. He throws water on it. It cracks open. He now, now during this he keeps having these uh like daydreams of what's going to happen and how he's going to get all this money and how or he's not going to because when he dumps water on it he comes in and it shows him in the scenario again and he gets nothing out of it. Um but what he doesn't realize is that once it burns his skin, he's like sucking on his fingers for a bit because he's got these like little blisters that just start appearing and then they look like little pods. And as he decides to take what's left of it back inside and he's like, well, I might just, I'll glue it together, whatever. Maybe I'll do that in the morning. Um, you start seeing these like little green things, seedlings start popping up across uh, the yard, like all over the yard as you go inside. And then he goes inside and he's just kind of, I, he, you know, he looks down at his fingers and he starts to, uh, tries to wash them off and get rid of the stuff that was on them. He drinks some, a bunch of, uh, I guess he starts to pour himself some vodka and stuff. Once he finds out, he sees this stuff all over his fingers and he's like, holy crap, this green fungus, like a moss has started growing on his hand. It started growing everywhere in the place. And it's at this point that I start to actually start to feel really bad for his character because he's just this poor dumb guy that just had a meteor fall on him and this crazy shit is clearly going to kill him. And and he did nothing wrong. He he did, well, I wouldn't have poured water on it and I wouldn't have gotten near it. But still, like, in the scheme of things, in the big scheme of things, he did nothing wrong normally that would... In, he didn't, in, but he was too, he was too proud to call for help. Right, and he had the and chance that was to call this, for... And that's kind of one of the more tragic things about this. Like, right. he was too afraid to call for help when he wanted it because he fantasized about being about losing a finger right he didn't want to lose a finger instead he loses his life right his life so yeah it's it's very strange like seeing this this weird dilemma that he has and then it's too late and it starts taking over and growing everywhere and it starts itching him and that's the thing now he's also sucked on his fingers and this was the first time where i started thinking spores and like if he's sucking on his fingers because you see his tongue gets that thing on it as well um and then you start seeing that it's passing through him and it's it's growing inside of him as well that's the part where i you know you think about okay he has this all this stuff on his body it can't be that bad eventually he could just cut all the stuff down like a beard you know it's like hair growing too much then I started thinking, this is growing inside of his body as well. How is he able to breathe that? Yeah, it's, it's getting while? consumptive. It's, it's getting yeah. to be where like it is taking over his body and becoming him. Right, uh, and, that's, and, and not that's, like he is becoming a grass monster. He is just becoming grass. Yeah, exactly, and that's kind of what we get to, um, where it finally itches him too much. He can't handle it anymore, and he he jumps into his bathtub, gets soaked. He's happy now because he's you know able to. Um, cool down or get all this stuff so he's not itching anymore because it's unbearable and then you see the next day man he is 
he's literally he's, like he's more swamp thing than swamp thing was you know what i mean he is the swamp he is not a thing he is he, just swamp. yeah he's not swamp thing yeah he is just swamp um and he's able to then reach out grab his shotgun and blow his head off that and, is so and like and he's begging just to be able to do it yeah, he he's hoping that he can do this because of how horrible it is and how, yeah, you know what, if he did, if he had gone for help, maybe he, they would have been able to do something or maybe just like in the blob and just like in everything else, it touches their hand, right, to start with and then they end up dying anyway and they infect the entire town. In and this then in case, a crazy, like, two-part reveal shot of, like, his entire right. house being covered in grass and then his entire property property His but entire but now but now it's spreading and you see it it's spreading seeping towards... over into the next county in the next town right and over you overhear the radio in this very like fun review like reveal of like oh it's gonna be nice and green for the next few days or it's and gonna you rain won't even believe lot, it they said lots of rain over the next few days it should make everything look nice and green and you see that castle rock is only five miles away or something like exactly. that. exactly um, and you're like wow and, like and, that, and that's that a very a nice little touch that like as stephen king can provide i'm sure right and i i thought that was a lot a lot of fun um, definitely one of my favorites of, of the entire Crypt Show series in general. Uh, but then we delve into something to tide you over. Okay, um, so I think this could be very quick. We so can do this very yeah, quickly. So something, something to tide you over is solid. It's, it's Leslie Nielsen confronting Ted Danson about an affair that Ted Danson has had with, his wi- with Leslie Nielsen's wife, Galen Ross. So he decides that... He's going to show him where he has put uh, Becky, the character of Becky. And Richard, which is Leslie Nielsen's character, takes Harry, which is Ted Danson's character, um, off to go find her. And then tells him to bury himself alive. And as the tide is coming up on this beach, so he takes him to this secluded place on the beach... Um, we find out Leslie Nielsen owns this entire area, like so. No one is gonna come to find them. Uh, Becky is further down the beach, buried up to her neck, and the water is re- coming up by her. Same thing now with Ted Danson, and he has this TV on this extension cord so he can watch it. And I love it because it really is utilizing 1982's or actually when it was filmed 81's technology to its fullest. Um, it, giant extension cord tube television and recording it on vhs to for posterity's sake so he can watch it later or no live live yeah live recording it yeah so he's yeah so then he watches it later and i think has a live stream from his house or something Mm -hmm. it's crazy like just just an appreciation of how well liz and nielsen can ham it up and also being dramatic like i'm waiting for like every time that he holds a gun with like his right. like uh, like arm like popped against his hip like that like an old like 1950s gangster it, it, like i'm waiting for the naked gun like treatment out of him i'm just waiting right. for something absurd to happen but it never does and right. it's just I, the most uh, absurd tease of just being like when is leslie nielsen going to re- react to something ridiculous right and i get that i and and you think about that but then i remember that leslie nielsen started as a dramatic actor Yes. Um, so every time I, I think of this scene in particular, I, re- I really enjoy this one a lot because it shows me Leslie Nielsen as what he set out to do before he became um, 
kind of known for doing parodies of genres mm-hmm. in general and, and spoof and films. just being an overall goofball. Like, right. And granted, like he, he's he's still doing a very good job, and this is still very like tongue in no, cheek. He's having doing, a good he's time. Doing, he is having fun with it, and there's some great moments in it. And I have to say, Ted Danson um, nails it in this. I I like seeing Ted Danson in this type of role. What I really love about this is the twist. So you're hoping that they're going to escape and somehow get out of the sand. Leslie Nielsen even says you can if potentially it's possible, uh, but he doesn't know if he'll actually be able to do it. And Ted Danson's like, you know, I can hold my breath a long time. I can get out. And then you see Ted Danson underwater just completely with this cool backlit effect. Like it looks amazing. That shot of him just drowning underwater, hoping to get out. Um, and you're like, well, I guess, I guess it's over. Like he, he's going to die and the other guys or the, his, uh, love interest, Becky's going to go as well. Uh, not, not the case, man. I mean, they do, but then Leslie Nielsen goes and tries to see where they are the next day. And it's like, oh, they must've gotten washed out. Like the tide took him out. The tide took him out. The tide took him out. Um, nope. Cause when he goes back home, he's, he's kind of getting a little paranoid and yeah, Harry and Becky, have come back and they look they look god awful man they are bloated up with seawater like becky's mm-hmm. eyes are kind of just it looks like another they look another great zombie effect yeah. another magnificent type of like lighting effect with their makeup it's so super cool, super man. good very super blue good. very like aqua ish and then having those comic book effects behind it as well like that's that to me is just so great like seeing that blue and that Twilight Zoney type spiral behind them, um, or like the wave, like like, like a, honestly, like a just the money shot of it. that entire story. Like we really nothing much else does it say other than yeah. like a fantastic showy finale. And then and then seeing that instead of just killing him in a normal way, they've taken him out to be buried alive. And then you have um, Leslie Nielsen saying he can hold his breath for a really long time. And then the first wave hits him, and this look of fear. This look of just, oh shit, hits him. And it, it's great. Uh, it, it's such a fantastic, very well done, very simple, but very effective um, vignette, you know? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and then moving on to probably the most, I guess you could say, dramatic uh, story. Yeah, this this actually feels like the most traditional to me, as far as being something that, that was pulled directly from the comics. Uh, the Crate. Uh, this had Hal Holbrook, Adrian Barbeau, Fitz Weaver, very much of an old school vibe to it. Adrian Barbeau was the younger, yeah. you know, version. This, this I, honestly, as, as uh, like I know that this was made in this movie was made in the early '80s, but this story felt straight up '70s. Oh, totally '70s, man, a hundred percent. And it, it had it had a very classic vibe to it. And I I really I really enjoy the crate, but it also is the one that. Out of all of them, in a weird way, yes, you have to suspend disbelief in every single one of them, but this one just seemed a little... The crate itself and what's inside the crate and how it can pull things inside based on the size, this is a very small crate that fits something that when you see it in the close-ups, it looks like the thing has to be giant. It looks like a giant ape-like creature, you know, like this giant beast. But then when you actually see the thing in its full form, its head takes up like half of its body. And it's like this beast 
you know, kind of like a mini Sasquatch almost. Yeah, it's um, it's a really fun, interesting sort of just beast monster, you might yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. I think they call it Fluffy or something in the when they were yeah, filming yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, I, I, I've always like kind of loved the idea of just like the crazy big marked crate from God knows where that always right. has some sort of just monster inside of it that nobody dare open. Yeah. Uh, that's straight up cartoon stuff that I absolutely love. And uh, I think the sort of best, the highlight of this story is actually kind of the character interactions with yes. the monster. It's very much, very much an ensemble piece. Yeah, I think I think with this one, um, it it really is an ensemble piece. When you go through, you get the party introduction in the beginning. Um, well, we find out first that uh, custodian drops his quarter. Here's what I love about this from the opening panel custodian drops the quarter and we're following it. Boom. We get right to right to what the inciting incident is like right off the bat. There's no messing around. Um, and it's all just because he dropped a quarter and he finds a crate that's marked Arctic expedition, June 19th, 1834. And so he notifies this college professor who is off at a party, um, with his friend, and I guess he's over, yeah, he's over at his buddy's house and the guy who's like throwing the party, um, his wife, uh, Henry, Henry Northrup, his wife, Wilma, she goes by Billy in Northrup. She is, she's a lush. I mean, she's just drunk and being obnoxious the entire time. Uh, you see him fantasize about killing his wife and everyone cheering. So, you know, he's not too fond of her. Um, but then, yeah, he's supposed to play, uh, what is he, ch playing chess with him, right? Like, that's what, when, when, so he's going to be playing chess with, uh, with Dr. Stanley, played by Fitzweaver, uh, but Dr. Stanley's called away. So, Dr. Stanley shows up, meets up with Mike the janitor, and he ends up, or no, before he meets with, I guess, yeah, he, he meets up with Mike the janitor, they decide they're going to go in and they're going to check and see like what this crate is he you know he's kind of like oh, okay this is interesting um they pry open this crate which is really intricate man they gotta really go in it's a crowbar. it's a very very long process to get that thing open you're pulling out those like old school framing nails or whatever they are the big like spiky ones and then you know you're opening up the locks and stuff and he mike looks inside of it and this ape-like creature just very small just kills mike pulls him inside and then just lee you know just he's he's eating this dude inside of this box so this thing that's small enough to fit in the box has now pulled this guy into the box with him and eaten him um and it's crazy watching stanley's reaction to it like dr stanley's reaction to it is amazing it is very just like holy shit what did i just see it is definitely the most realistic reaction of anyone just being completely just what what happened and it is it's very it's an extreme measure of of an of reaction from somebody but i believe it the entire way through uh and then his his grad student shows up having no idea what's going on and um the the crate is now under the stairs again like the creature is decided you you move me away i'm going back under these stairs like what the hell which to me is is kind of like holy crap this thing okay cool like this thing is obviously knows where it wants to stay at for some reason and it, it has this place and then yeah like 
Charlie, you get this moment of reprieve, this moment of, oh, everything's going to be okay. And then Charlie gets eaten by this thing as well. Um, and then, you know, Stanley goes and tells uh, Henry everything that's going on. And Henry's dealing with his wife and he's, you know, dealing with all the crap with her and how he doesn't. She's just insulting him all the time, making him feel right. like less she's, of a she's man. She's really, really, really mean. She just berates him, and she does it in this really, really mean way, and then says she's joking around, but she's not really joking around. She's just kind no, of an no, awful I'd, person. Like, that, that's some seated in something. But, yeah, I she, mean, she really is. And then, uh, yeah, like, Northrop decides he's just not going to deal with this, and, uh, he well, he comes up with an idea of how to take care of this creature and his his wife at the same time, who he always daydreams of killing. So he writes her a letter and gets her to come out to um, the college because she loves gossip and he has so much of it that he layers into this letter that she can't help just to fall prey to it. Uh, like a moth to a flame, you know what I mean? And shows up there, and he tries to get the beast to eat her, and it doesn't at first. And then she just, like, when he tries to, like, shake her and force her to be getting eaten by the thing, there's this moment of, oh, shit, is it actually going to happen? Because um, then she kind of, like, gets back at him and kind of, you don't know what's going to happen at that moment. It's like, he tried to kill her. Does she know he just tried to kill her? You know what I mean? Yeah, um, and it, the, like the the very clear motive without being sure of intent, kind of a thing. Right. Uh, it's it's a it's a very it like it's a, I feel like it's a, it was almost like a game of Clue, like that murder mystery that never was, where right. some sub subterfuge was going on with this monster. Uh, I liked this one a lot. I kind of feel like I wish it would have moved a bit quicker. Yeah, uh, because it does, it's very it much kinda, about. Yeah, it, it's kind of slow. It takes a while to figure out where it's going. Yeah, uh, but other than that, I think it's pretty fun because then again we have the uh, like Stanley reassuring that uh, the creature's like done for, and then it's revealed later that like oh no, it, like the crate's empty, but it is alive and well, and again on the loose. Right. Well, we think so. Yeah. When when Stanley, um, well Northrop Northrop, he's the one who comes back to tell Stanley the creature's no more. So Stanley, who's been freaking out, was like, "What happened?" Because he basically just drugs his buddy. Gets him mm -hmm. drunk and drugs him so he can then go kill his wife and then put her inside of the crate with the creature and throw it in this uh, at the bottom of like a, a ravine area. So, or the nearby lake. So, yeah, then you, then we find out that the, that the creature is alive and we don't know if it's going to come back after someone, if it's going to pull its box out or whatever, but I like it. I think the, I think the crate is a, is a fun one and it's a good... It's got a lot of layers to it. I just wish that, as, as you said, was a little faster paced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it, it could have stood to move a bit better. But right. uh, moving on to the final, the finale. Yeah. Uh, we have, uh, what is this one? what was this one called this again? This one's called They're Creeping Up On You. Yes, yes, yes. It is, um, I, you know, this one's based on, now I understand like why they had problems. So this one's about a guy has a phobia of like germs and everything he he basically yeah, misophobia i believe it's called yeah misophobia he lives in a hermetically sealed apartment um everything has electronic locks he has surveillance cameras um he has a suction tube that pulls out tissues and stuff when he's done using those 
he starts having problems with bugs. Now, originally this story was written to take place in a really nice, plush, fancy apartment, but I guess because they used real cockroaches in this... Yeah, um, they like, clearly they, used, they did. Oh god, they use a lot. They they realized like we weren't they weren't able, they weren't going to be able to control them the way that they wanted to if they had it in a room that wasn't pristine. You know, they would never yeah. find all the roaches. They would be everywhere. So this one has a different look from everything else. It's definitely the most sterile looking of all of the of all the um the shorts. I think it works. But I don't know if it's necessarily what I would have ended things on. Um, yeah, it's kind of just more of a a bit of a sad, uh, not Twilight Zoney, but kind of just like it's one of those ironic sort of right stories where like you know okay well he he's clearly like the cockroaches don't kill him but he has a heart attack due to his fear. <laughs> well, they start so they start coming in everywhere at first. There's a few, and then there's more. Then there's blackouts that happen in his tower building um, because they're trying to get people up there to repair stuff and get rid of the bug problem, but, you know, it's late at night. And this guy doesn't... He's a terrible human being. So, basically, he calls up people who work for him and tells them, you know, if they don't do their job, they're going to be fired and he's going to ruin their lives. And he's pretty much just an awful, awful rich human being um so you don't feel bad for him one bit when these roaches start appearing everywhere and then they start appearing with like a vengeance i mean they start filling up he has this panic room and when he gets in there they just fill up the panic room they pour in like crazy and it's too much for him and he has a heart attack and he dies well then yeah (laughs) yeah and, and you're like oh man that's that sucks Okay. Uh, yeah, and then real gross stuff. Then it, then it gets Whoa. then it gets crazy. The lights turn back on, the power is back. <clears throat> His corpse is sitting in the panic room, but there's no roaches anywhere. This mm-hmm. thing was filled, and I'm talking like filled two feet up with roaches yes. in it to the brim, to the like two feet up into it heavily, just like a swimming pool of roaches. Now there are none. But then all of a sudden, yeah. his body starts getting all weird and starts moving like contorting around strangely. and it's like contorting shifting around. And roaches just pour out of his body and rip through his flesh and just out of his fill mouth, his up. eyeballs. It was a okay. To its credit, it was a very good effect. It's an amazing effect, and it's a great sequence um, of of events on how it all led to that. I yeah. I wish it had been done in that plush apartment because I think the colors in that and the color contrast and like the lighting and the cinematography would have right. Really... It looked like the, the effect juxtaposed with that room was a bit stale. But I mean, right. he was in the panic room already. He had to die there. It's not like you could move him in no, any no, logical no. way. And, well, I think in his whole apartment, the whole apartment had that kind of that feeling to it. When in the original short story, it did not. So, right. it, but you know. As we said, and as they had issues with, how else are they going to be able to round up all of these things? Especially when they're using real roaches. They used an ungodly amount, I think 20,000 cockroaches. And then the rest of it, apparently, when it was up to to about two feet, Tom Savini said they were nuts and raisins that were popped into there. And the roaches were on top of it. 
That's nuts. <laughs> That's yeah, so, super gross. So because then it looks like it looks like more roaches, but they're all buried in between. So nuts, raisins, roaches. It just looks like if you have a half of it moving or a quarter of it moving, it just looks like they're all moving. You know? Yeah. And um, and again, this is stellar effect and a a pretty decent story to wrap around that one amazing. Uh, type of finale right. reveal practical uh, yeah and really and, you know the only complaints that i have is that i wish there was more color into it but i get it and you know it works for what it is it definitely shows um for the type of character he would live in a very sterile type environment right that is, uh, that th- this like is that. the simple and effective before we had the sort of like complex like melodrama of that creature in the yeah. box like this this is just a very straightforward like this guy's a dick and yeah. he's uh, he's afraid of of germs and bugs, and bugs and germs kill him. That's that's right. all that there is to it. Right. Uh, and, I, and I think it's, it's a fun it's... and effective one. Uh, Absolutely. I, and I, I I think I think the simple thing to go out on is probably the best to go out on. Yeah. Um, and I think I think it's it's a lot of fun. It's definitely one of the best moments is watching his body just get eviscerated by that. And yeah, it, it's very satisfying to see. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. Then, um, you know, we wrap it up with uh, with the little uh, the epilogue, which mm-hmm. this to me is a bit of a letdown. I I kind of wanted a little more happening from it, but I I get it. It's it's simple. I guess it's effective. Um, yeah. Um. It. it... So I, I feel like it's a bit too it, like it's almost too cartoony. Well, with like that, just with a the little final, too the much. Final, the final few moments are a little too cartoony, but then again, we are looking at a very comic book type thing. So yeah, the next it's the next morning. We've gotten through all of our stories. Two garbage collectors, and one of them is played by Tom Savini. Um, they end up finding uh, the comic book next to the trash. They look at ads for X-ray specs, the Charlie's At- Charles Atlas bodybuilding course, and then they see one for a voodoo doll. But they're like, oh, it looks like someone's already redeemed this. And you're like, okay, this is cool. I know where this is going, but I want to see like how far they're willing to go. So then the dad starts complaining of neck pain inside the house, and then he's like screaming in pain as you see Billy, who's just stabbing the voodoo doll with a needle over and over and over. Um, and then it kind of just freeze frames on that. It goes to its animated panel and the movie's over. Now, while that is cool, we've kind of led up to some like really visceral, bloody, over-the-top moments. I was kind of hoping that this would be that denouement, you know, like the big, you know, this, yeah, this final... Yeah, this, this is a bit more of a like... Oh well, I get like kind of a thing. Yeah, it it just where... doesn't even. It, it's not even kind of like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna take this out. It's gonna be gory and and whatever, but it's not gonna be the biggest craziest thing in the world. And in this one, it felt like it it was trying to hype it up as being a crazy big thing, but there wasn't when it really anything, really wasn't. There wasn't anything visually visceral to kind of drive it home, yeah. which I think it, it's been... a bit more of a like simple kind of Hitchcockian kind of a thing where like. Oh, but if that if that's the voodoo doll, then that me oh boy kind of a thing. I almost uh, wish I almost wish it had been something where you see you see the kid up with the voodoo doll, you see him stab it with a pin, and then you hear Tom Atkins scream bloody murder. Right, yeah, something like that. Something actually tangential that we can where draw you don't, from as, you, other than just this silent thing. Right, because you don't have to see him. 
get, you don't have to see his reaction of, ooh, my neck hurts, because that actually takes away from it. It's the idea of if he shoved that needle, and if you saw him through the window doing that, or if he's looking out the window or something and just kind of angry and just stabs it right in the face or something, and that's when you just hear this just yell, and then you hear the mother scream too with it or something. And then, yeah, then you could freeze frame on his face, same way, and I think that would be awesome. But, you know, this is like, we're nitpicking on what is a really solid movie. Oh, absolutely. I, th- I think to, to sum up here, this is a, uh, a, a it's a dynamite uh, type of movie that uh, has pretty much all very good stories with yeah. at least one very good highlight amongst them all. Now, uh, yeah, and I think I think this one is this one is very solid. Now let's let me briefly, very briefly, uh, talk about its its two uh, two bad sequels. Well, and not okay, bad, bad fully. sequels. Well, less lesser than sequels, lesser than we'll say. so. So Creepshow 2 comes out in 1987. We, they got the cinematographer of this film, of the first film to come back, and he actually directed uh, the sequel. Now, the sequel is only three vignettes, right? So you're, you're one of them has to deal with, I think, Chief... I think it's called Chief Woodenhead is the first one. Um, and it is... It's fine. It goes on too long, in my opinion. Like, it's just, you know where, you know what's going to happen. And then it just keeps going on and going on and going on. And you're just kind of like, all right, fine. That's whatever. Um, The raft is the one that people know the most and kind of like the best. I think the raft is, it's just four four friends on a raft. There's this black toxic blob that if it gets you, it eats you alive. And it's a very simple simple storyline but it's definitely the most effective as being the creepiest and just like very um short sweet to the point kind of like a bottle episode thing where you're just trapped on this raft and people just get uh melted um that one's great and then the hitchhiker wasn't man the hitchhiker just it just didn't really work so like creep show 2 felt very much like a lesser instead of five stories with a wraparound story you get three stories with a wraparound story. Um, honest, and, and, and the raft is really the only one that stands out. The others just feel too long. Hitchhiker wears out its welcome, and same with Old Chief Woodenhead. Uh, and then, then there's Creepshow 3, which came out in 2006. Has, no, has nothing to do with Stephen King or George Romero. Um, they, I know that Creepshow 2 was written by Romero, along with... Uh, he was one of the writers on it. So, you know, you still have that going with it, which is good. But Creepshow 3, nothing to do with anybody involved with Creepshow 1 and 2. People do it not... It seems to me that, yeah, it seems to me that, like, most of the uh, big Hollywood enthusiasm was lost in its coming sequels. Because a lot of what I could see here is passion and fun uh, from this right. first one. sure. And, and the first these one... Sequels, and these sequels seem to be okay. We want to keep that spirit going, but also well, the money. first the first Maybe. one is well, the first one's an official sequel. The second one was somebody just I think found the name or they sold off the name to somebody and let them make it. It is very straight to video in its quality. It is not very good either. It does go back to five stories though, which is cool. But either way, uh, the original Creep Show, the first one, that is the one that I would say 
definitely see uh that's the one that i revere the highest i or regard the highest i i love it i think it's a, a fantastic film so inspirational man to for for a horror movie it's it's it is it's very inspiring when it comes to things like cinematography uh editing stories like i i love this movie exactly i think so too and yeah. so i think to sum up um i would easily recommend this uh first creep show to yes. uh, to everybody yes. i think uh this is a this is kind of essential if you like vignetted anthology films classic effects of the 80s comic book imagery this has got a lot going for it but yeah man this this has been a blast uh, so yeah what do we have on the docket for next time well, next time, we are going to be looking at the brand new release of the movie Hereditary. Yeah. It looks uh, so good, man. The trailer looks so good. Hearing nothing but good things. I think if I were to check the standings right now on Rotten Tomatoes, I believe this is close to, if not exactly, at a 100%. Uh, this is, uh, is going to be this is at a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, we are, yeah. uh, we're probably in for some good things. I think this looks very good. Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely excited about this film. I saw the trailer not knowing much about it and, you know, still don't know that much about it even from that. Um, but it looks like a lot of fun. We will be talking about that next week. So um, you should go see it this weekend because it comes out on Friday. <laughs> yes, indeed. And if not, yeah. we will definitely have our sincerest impressions. We will, definitely. All right, but that is going to do it for us here at Oh the Horror. If you want to check us out anywhere, you can find us anywhere that podcasts can be found. Where you're listening to this right now, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on anything that you could be found. Spotify as well. We've also got an email address if you'd like to email some suggestions and tips and what you think of the show. That's at OhTheHorrorCast at gmail.com, as well as on Twitter at OhTheHorrorCast. And uh, that should be pretty much it for all of us. Um, thank you so much for enjoying the show, and thank you so much for listening to us for uh, this extended period of time while we enjoy all of this stuff. Thank you guys so much again, and uh, until next time, I am Steve Allman. And I'm Rob Holmes. We'll talk to you next time. See you, everybody. Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. Time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. When there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk here.